Alcohol's harm on cardiovascular health is arguably the area where scientific knowledge and public awareness have progressed most slowly in the last decade. Think for example about the fact that public health organizations and health professionals working on cardiovascular issues have been much slower to address alcohol harm in their work compared to the area of cancer prevention, control and treatment. In addition to this type of inaction, the myth of alcohol's benefits for cardiovascular health still persists. And in policymaking processes, this misunderstanding is a critical impediment to accelerating action on alcohol as public health priority. But this is changing. And today's show is exploring why change is needed and how it can be further accelerated. Hello. From Movendi International, I am Mike Dünnbier. Warm welcome to the Alcohol Issues podcast. This is the very first episode of our second season. Thank you for tuning in. The Alcohol Issues podcast is an original production by Movendi International. It's a show about current alcohol issues of global importance. Through in-depth conversations with policymakers, community leaders and scientists, we explore alcohol policy issues, discuss landmark scientific studies and expose the alcohol industry. In this episode of the Alcohol Issues podcast, I welcome Mark Pettigrew and May van Schalkwijk. Mark is Professor of Public Health Evaluation in the Department of Social and Environmental Health Research at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He is Director of the NIHR Public Health Research Unit. May is Specialist Registrar in Public Health and NIHR Doctoral Research Fellow at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, researching the commercial determinants of health. They are two of the authors of a very important study called Analysis of the Accuracy and Completeness of Cardiovascular Health Information on Alcohol Industry Funded Websites. We recorded our conversation on October 6, 2021. For the first episode of Season 2 of the Alcohol Issues podcast, we welcome Professor Mark Pettigrew and May van Schalkwijk. Together, we want to take an in-depth look at how alcohol industry-funded websites misrepresent the evidence on cardiovascular health. The topic of alcohol's impact on cardiovascular health is important in three aspects. Protecting people and patients from avoidable alcohol harms increasing public recognition of the real effects of alcohol and facilitating alcohol policy action to prevent and reduce alcohol harm. The alcohol industry and their social aspects and public relations organizations have been shown to misrepresent the risk of alcohol, for example, with respect to cancer and pregnancy. Therefore, the assumption seems plausible that big alcohol would do the same with regards to alcohol and cardiovascular health. In a recent study, researchers around Mark Pettigrew and May van Schalkwijk investigated the assumption that the alcohol industry would position alcohol as, in quotation marks, hard healthy, to further undermine public perceptions of risks from alcohol consumption. In our conversation, we talk about the study, its findings and its implications. Our conversation provides an update about what scientists actually know about alcohol's link to cardiovascular disease. And we take a much broader and more detailed look at the strategies and tactics of the alcohol industry to frame and misrepresent the effects of their products on human health. For instance, we talk about what we know about alcohol industry misrepresentation of alcohol's link to cancer. And we discuss what to do with the findings of the study. I hope you enjoy this conversation and find it useful. Hello May and uh, hello Mark. Good afternoon to you guys and thank you very much for coming on the Alcohol Issues podcast today. 
Thanks very much, Mike. Thanks for the invitation. And uh, it's a good opportunity to, to talk about some of the, the research and have a bit of a discussion. Thank you very much, Mike. It's great to be back on the podcast. I was very honoured to be able to talk about our, our previous paper on dark nudges, and it's a pleasure to be able to come and, and talk to you about this, this next paper. Yeah, and you guys are doing so many really important research endeavours, and today we will focus on one of them. I believe that we'll touch upon uh, some of the others as well. I think the social norming dimension that you referred to may is so important, or I think the cancer dimension, how the alcohol industry misrepresents this is so important. But let me just say, today we want to discuss your recent paper that is called Analysis of the Accuracy and Completeness of Cardiovascular Health Information on Alcohol Industry-Funded Websites. So to set the scene, maybe we can start with two questions. I, I would like to ask you, how do you know as researchers, how do you go about it to find out whether um, an alcohol industry front group is funded by the alcohol industry and what is a front group? So how can we understand uh, this part of your research? Um, well, I can kick off. Um, it is, it's a good question. It's not always a straightforward question to answer, I think. Um, I mean, we know that the alcohol industry, like all their industries, um, funds organizations which play a sort of, I suppose, a corporate social responsibility role. Um, they're funded in order to portray the industry, whether it's the alcohol industry, tobacco industry does it to some extent, and other industries, fossil fuel industry and so on. Um, they will fund organizations to act as a public face. In the case of the alcohol industry, they fund organizations um, which have been called social aspects PR organizations or SAPROs. Um, mm. I, um, these are funded to um, disseminate health information to the public and indirectly, I think, to policymakers. And the intention really is to give the industry a health halo the strategic purpose is assumed to be to allow the industry to say, look at all the good things that we're doing in terms of protecting the public, warning the public about the harms of our product. So don't look at what we're doing too closely. Don't regulate us too closely. Um, the industry says, well, I know we're having all these discussions about the need to regulate marketing and uh, minimum unit pricing and so on. But that's all unnecessary because we're a very responsible industry look at these organizations we've set up. And these organizations, some of them are charities, and some of them are other forms of organization which are used to disseminate health information to the public. I suppose the problem is that on the face of it, it might sound to some people like a good idea, but we know from other yeah. analyses that we've done that the information that they disseminate is deeply problematic. It's not evidence-based it hides the risks and it actually misinforms the public about the harms of their products. So, so I suppose the question, go back to your initial question about how we, how we know what these organiza organizations do and how they're funded. Some of it is relatively straightforward and that the um, alcohol industry itself will say that they fund these organizations um, in order to, you know, in quotes, educate the public. Um, organizations like Drink Aware in the UK. Other organizations, it's less straightforward, and some of them have been included, have been, it's been uh, suggested that they have uh, convoluted relationships to the alcohol industry. So, in effect, they conceal their industry funding either mm. directly or actively or, or passively. So it, it isn't always straightforward. Um, in some of our analyses, like in this analysis, for example, one can go back to previous analyses to check the links to the alcohol industry. Um, there are the Global Alcohol, alcohol Producers Annual Reports um, often name some of these organizations. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a way to sort of cross-check some of this. But um, the bigger issue, I mean, in terms of knowing about their funding, I think it's a really good question because it's it flags up a more problematic issue, which is quite often these organizations are strangely coy about who funds them. And they may not say 
for example, when they write an article in a newspaper or they do uh, or they they try to publish something in a journal or they fund other researchers to publish a, a piece of research funded by them, they sometimes find uh, a slightly elliptical form of wording to avoid saying we are funded by the alcohol industry. So they may say, for example, that uh, we are supported by so-and-so, which is a very different, you know, the uh, framing of that is very different. So just for example, last week, Drinkware Ireland published an editorial in the Irish Times, and the phrasing of that was that they were supported by, um, which is, it almost distances the reader from the fact that they actually are directly funded by the alcohol industry. So this issue of who, how do we know about their funding, that's also a source of misinformation. So you will also find their statements in published academic papers uh, being slightly obscure. The actual fact that they're, you know, that either researchers or organisations are industry funded. So it, I suppose the very short answer is, it sometimes requires um, a bit of digging. I'm not sure if May has any, any other thoughts on that. No, thank, thank you, Matt. That's very, it's a really comprehensive answer. And, and I think it also, I think all I, I'd like to add is is kind of showing that, that it's it's a very uh, challenging web or network to, to navigate. And I thought what I what might be helpful uh, for, for your listeners, Mike, was to just, I was interested by the word um, uh, front group that you, you used. And I think sometimes a uh, front group more traditionally has been used for organisations where, um, as Mark was saying, you, you have um, really very little understanding of where their funding came from and actually effort has been made to conceal that because often a front group is to give this illusion of a grassroots movement not connected to the industry. Um, but actually... Um, People, um, colleagues in, in, in the literature who also study um, alcohol industry and other industries have noted that then kind of following this is this uh, development in, in the way these groups are being named and funded so that sometimes, as Mark was saying, um, the SAOs or the SAPOs, these kind of social issue management or corporate image management even uh, kind of organisations, actually can be up the up front some of them saying we are f- funded by the industry and the, and the reason this can also add to a kind of um which can be problematic is 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 this other agenda um trend we see is that then industry can say we're part of the solution look at us we're funding these um, groups they can provide information to the public and we don't need regulation so there's this flip side where because they can actually be very clear about their funding. Um, and this does bring up some questions then when you talk to, talk about the fact that then a group fully funded or part funded by industry says they're independent and then that but without acknowledging that there's a, a financial conflict of interest there. So there's these other elements to that story which um, we're seeing it's important to recognise that that change away from front groups that conceal their funding towards groups that are very clear at times about their funding but what why that is and actually in the end of the day um, who's that serving and one thing I'd like to add to what Mark is saying is is uh, I think it's also important to point out that other people have noted in the literature in their analyses of these kind of groups is that they always tend to focus and we we've analyzed in this paper the particular detail of of focusing on health harms and and what that means to individual, but very, they they don't comment on WHO best buys as to what is actually needed to protect people from from alcohol. So that's another thing that we tend to see with these groups is that you also don't get kind of education to the public about minimum unit pricing or about the impacts of, of advertising. So that's another, just an important thing to remember is there's, um, there's a, a big gap there. I think this is a great introduction and uh, now I have learned this term corporate image management organization. I think that's excellent. I like also this discussion uh, distinguishing between a front group and then these uh, corporate image management organizations because for a little moment, I want to explore just a little bit longer. Mark, you talked about the the maybe the two strategic purposes of these SEPROs. 
So one is is to create a health halo for the alcohol industry through disseminating supposedly public health information. And the other one is the strategic purpose to avoid regulation because uh, the alcohol industry wants to portray the image that they are part of the solution. They're solving the problem they are causing. So there are these two. And I like your explanation, May, that they need both types of organizations. So those that are a little bit more hidden um, that can maybe work more with uh, the strategic lobbying, undermining this, and then those that are a little bit more open so that the, the health halo really comes also to the producer. So if you could comment on, on this, am I getting it uh, correctly here? Is, is that what's going on? I, th I think that's right, Mike. And there's another sort of quite complicated element to all of this, which is that if you, if you have an organization of you know, if, if an al the alcohol industry or, or pr a producer sets up an organization and acknowledges that it's funding an organization and says, we have set up this organization because we're a responsible company and we've set it up to tell the public about how to avoid harmful drinking. So they're faced with a challenge then, aren't they? Because first of all, they have to appear to inform the public about alcohol harms but they can't actually inform the public about alcohol harms because so much of their profit comes from people who are harmed by alcohol consumption. Yeah. So, so it's actually quite difficult. It's quite, no, well, not a difficult one to resolve, but they have a challenge there. Um, so the, the main purpose of these organizations is to appear to be giving the public about say, information about, say, in this the case of this paper, cardiovascular disease, or in previous analyses that we've done, information about pregnancy, fetal, fetal alcohol syndrome, or to appear to give the public information about cancer. But they can't risk giving the public accurate information, which allows the public to make an informed choice, because their informed choice will result in them being concerned about cancer or cardiovascular disease and drinking less. So that's that's circle square is circles or vice versa um, by the organizations appearing to say something about say cardiovascular disease yeah. um, so superficially it appears to be a source of information or information on cancer but the analysis when one goes down and scratches the surface just below that is there a, there is a host of misinformation so that's how it's done i suppose it's the appearance of providing information to the public, but but actually it's misinformation. And quite a lot of it is more than just information. It's just straight up pseudoscience. In other words, it, it appears to use the language of science, but there is no genuine scientific understanding or scientific evidence underneath um, quite a bit of the information. And it's carefully, I would suggest that it's carefully crafted um, to, to do that job. Of, of disseminating misinformation in such a way that it doesn't affect the market. So now you have already teased the conversation about misinformation, pseudoscience. Before we go into uh, alcohol's effects on cardiovascular health and how the alcohol industry deals with that, what do we know about how the alcohol industry deals with, for example, information on alcohol and cancer? I really like this conflict that you have drawn up here that they need to appear to inform about um, the link between alcohol and cancer uh, for these strategic purposes that you have um, talked about, but they really don't want and cannot uh, create a public that is aware of this. So how does the alcohol industry do this in the case of uh, cancer, for example, or other examples? So we've looked at this a couple of times, and actually another, uh, we did a detailed analysis of alcohol industry materials on, on cancer, which I'll come to in a tick. But um, separately, we also looked at the Twitter feeds of some of these organizations which disseminate health information, alcohol industry funded organizations. So we looked at the Twitter feeds in 2016 of DrinkAware, DrinkAware Ireland, DrinkWise, which is the Australian um, SAPRO uh, funded by Diageo and we compared these to independent charities 
charities which didn't have alcohol industry funding. So it, the, the Twitter feeds of this, these organisations, I think, answer some of your question. Um, because, again, one would expect if they're tweeting about health, they would be tweeting about you know, important alcohol harms like cancer. Yeah. But we did fi find in their Twitter feeds that the organizations that I named that were funded by the alcohol industry were statistically significantly less likely to tweet about cancers, about breast cancer specifically, um, about alcohol harms more generally, and less likely to tweet about pregnancy and fertility. Um, I mean, they were also very different in lots of other ways. They're more likely to tweet pictures of uh, young women and young people and so on. But I think that sort of gives us, I mean, going back to your previous question, it gives a sense of the nature of the activity that they appear to engage in, but don't engage in. They appear to be tweeting out health information, but they're avoiding difficult topics which might affect the market. And mm -hmm. cancer is a difficult topic. And you know, the analysis that, that we published in drug and alcohol review in 2018, I think, showed that uh, really, really clearly. Um, we analysed 27 of these alcohol industry-funded organisations. I mean, some of them, as May says, are quite upfront about the fact that they're industry-funded, and some of them are actually from uh, companies like SAB Miller at the time, as was at the time. Um, but we analysed the all the information that they disseminated on cancer. Uh, so that included the contents of the website. Um, some of them had fact sheets and so on. And it's it's absolutely clear that they have particular areas of misinformation and particular approaches to misinformation around messaging about cancer. Um, so for example, they will either outrightly deny that alcohol contributes to the risk of breast cancer or cancer generally. But breast cancer is an area within which there's particular misinformation. It's a very common source of alcohol industry misinformation. Also, the, the other finding from the paper uh, is that colorectal cancer is another area of alcohol industry misinformation. So they will also avoid mentioning breast or col colorectal cancer. So they may mention cancers generally, but not specify breast cancer very commonly, and, and also uh, quite often colorectal cancer. So there, there are different approaches. So that's like an, an omission bias. They appear to be talking about cancers, but let's not mention breast cancer specifically. And one of the points that we made in the paper in trying to understand this was that if we think about it in market terms, and for the alcohol industry, maintaining and developing the female market as we know, as a major driver, and you know, it's a major uh, priority for the alcohol industry. That starts to explain, I think, why you might not want to raise awareness of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And it also explains, I think, why you might not want to emphasize the risk of pregnancy harms and fetal alcohol syndrome. So I think those particular mis areas of misinformation are explicable in terms of how the how these organizations exist to, de to defend the market and protect the industry. But the approaches that they use, I think it's quite interesting um, in terms of the misinformation, because some of it is what, in the, in the case of climate change misinformation, um, people who examine climate change misinformation talk about hard denialism and soft denialism. And in hard denialism, you simply, fossil fuel funded industry organizations simply deny that humans and the fossil fuel industry industry is contributing to climate change. And you also see hard denialism in some of the alcohol industry materials. Mm. Um, although that's less common, common now, which is interesting in itself, but hard denialism in the case of alcohol industry funded misinformation that, um, for example, Educ Alcohol, which is a Quebec-based um, organization, explicitly in the study that we uh, published um, said that uh, this is a quote some studies show a link between alcohol and breast cancer among both premenopausal and postmenopausal women. However, 
no causal relationship has been shown between moderate drinking and breast cancer. That's just simply false. That isn't, that's, that's, you know, no, there's no question. We've known about the relationship for at least 40 years and it's not disputed. So I would call that hard denialism from an organization with links to the alcohol and with, with links to alcohol industry funding. But then there, there are other forms of soft denialism in which the organ, an organization may appear to acknowledge that there is um, a risk of, uh, you know, an increased risk, but they will phrase it in such a way that uh, it's that the messaging is undermined. And there are numerous different ways of doing that. One way is to sort of um, acknowledge that there is a risk, but then say something like, yeah, but lots of things cause cancer. I mean, alcohol causes cancer, but what about smoking? What about the, what about diet? What about solar radiation and so on? And uh, so this is a very common approach. It was a, it's a tobacco industry strategy. It was called the alternate causation um, strategy by the tobacco industry, and it's also used by the alcohol industry. So there are different different approaches to all of this, um, but they're all variants of a very similar cross industry misinformation strategy. Um, and also the same strategies we have found across different analyses. The same strategies are used across different organizations, different alcohol industry funded organizations. And they're used across, the same strategies are used across different health issues. So we've looked at cardiovascular disease, cancer, mm. pregnancy, and so on. It's, it's, it's very much a sort of cross industry playbook approach. I think this omission bias and um, the reason why the alcohol industry is not informing properly about the fact that alcohol uh, causes breast cancer, looking at the market, so finding the explanation in the market is very interesting. And I prepared also a question for the end. What do we do with this information? I, I really want to pick up this point um, in the end again that the alcohol industry works to maintain and develop the female market and that shapes how they are engaging in this strategic activity with um, supposedly public health information. So I think you are already really illustrating the conflict of interest at work here. Well, I think we're just building on um, Mark's um introduction of that kind of very overt misinformation or very overt um, denying of something. And this this is a something that is is often um, it, it, at, at particular times in the progress of the public's or um, policymaking understand policymakers understanding of a harm, it, it might be very effective um, because it, it creates this sense of doubt or maybe it doesn't. But eventually you get to the stage where actually most people now, are accepting that it causes harm. And so it becomes harder when it's not overt like that, a kind of it does not statement. And just building on what Mark was saying is, is he, you know, he was saying you need to scratch the surface, you need to look across several organisations, several trends, is that this, this other kind of what I would say almost more, more insidious misinformation of, of just moving the goalpost a little bit where maybe not and you bring in the confounder or another reason why that harm might be an accepted um, cause of um, harm. And so I think it's about saying that these, these other um, kind of strategies or ways of getting around not denying it outright are much harder to see. And so this is why analyses like ours are important because it often is looking across multiple organisations, um, looking across, um, you know, lots of different types of documents and different sources, but also making these comparisons between an independent and non-independent groups of, of bodies. And I think what's really important is you can you can have this argument, oh, well, we mentioned cancer on our website, but there's, there's, there's three things here. One, an outright mention now, we need to ask, no, how are you mentioning it? Because it's the how that matters now, not yeah. if you mention it when we move on from the outright denial. So the if is if we have outright denial. Then we have how if it's mentioned, but how is it mentioned and what with what effect? Then the next is to say that, but still, besides, besides people coming back or, or organisations coming back and saying, oh, but we have it on our website, this that still has not explained ever this 
systematic difference between industry-funded and non-industry funding. Again, there's no explanation as to why apparently the same goal of of, um, educating and informing the public, but two very different ways and one very concerning given what the evidence is. And the third is to also say that another kind of problem, maybe this comes actually more back, uh, Malik, to your final make to your final question um, that we can talk about what do we do is to say there's this problem of, of governance in that we, okay, so once we know what's on that website and we're seeing differences between industry funding not or we're seeing kind of concerning ways that, that how it's being presented is we have no way as the public of knowing the decision-making behind that. And I, I think the point is that we, we, we have no idea the decision-making processes between behind these websites and, and how is it that it's decided that it should be presented in a certain way? I think this is really a good transition moment to discuss uh, alcohol harm and cardiovascular disease. And you mentioned it a little bit as well. When I'm discussing this, I have the privilege to talk with policymakers, but also the, the public, uh, taxi drivers and hairdressers and so on. People understand that alcohol causes harm and people will tell me the different examples that they might have experienced and heard of. Um, So even earlier today, I was in a conversation with a policymaker and I think it's fairly established that alcohol causes cancer and the policymaker understands why we think the term harmful use of alcohol and the term responsible drinking, why they are flawed concepts. But the same policymaker uh, can talk to me about antioxidants in wine. And so some of the positive effects that come from wine. So the topic of uh, cardiovascular disease and alcohol, that is a much more difficult topic, both in, in the policymaking space and in the broader public. And could you before we go into what your study found, can you just summarize what is the latest evidence about uh, the harm that alcohol causes to cardiovascular health? I, I can have a go to kick off. May as a public health doctor, may I could probably uh, answer this more authoritatively than I can. Great. Um, and actually, Lewis, who was the lead author on uh, the our analysis, is also a public health doctor. Yeah. But um, I mean, I, I think on the Part of the problem is there. There is a lot of noise around this, and you mentioned, you know, the antioxidants and so and so on. In a way, all of this sort of clouds the the fairly one of the key key issues, which is that I think there there is to to some extent a, a great uncertainty um, around part of the uh, issue around the effects of. Uh, alcohol on cardiovascular health. Um, and it relates to this, the J-shaped curve, you know, the fact that there appears to be a protective effect against cardiovascular disease of, of alcohol at, at low levels of consumption or very low levels of consumption, in fact. So there are genuine uncertainties there, um, but the evidence is actually quite mixed. But um, what it does, the evidence does appear to show that is that for people who don't drink at all, you know, people who abstain, they may have slightly higher higher risk. And this is often used by the alcohol industry. It's often interpreted uh, as uh, a sort of argument that one shouldn't abstain from alcohol at all and that one should drink moderately, as the alcohol industry would say. So people who don't drink do appear to have, for example, higher, higher levels of cardiovascular disease. And the but they might be at higher risk for a whole range of reason reasons, which might explain those poorer outcomes. So they might have stopped drinking because they already had poor health. And this, I mean, as you know, is the so-called sick quitters hypothesis. So that yeah. might might account for some of the apparent protective effect. I don't think it necessarily accounts for all of the apparent protective effect. But it does remain an area in which, in which the evidence is, is far from clear and it's far from consistent. And it's certainly not enough to be able to say that there is a protective effect from alcohol consumption, as many alcohol industry organizations do. 
And the other thing to be clear about, which I think the evidence shows, is that if there is a protective effect, it only applies at very low levels. Um, so I've seen various analyses, including the, the uh, analyses that have been done by the um, the ex excellent Sheffield uh, group uh, who modelled some of this, which suggested that it, any protective effect, if it, if it applies, probably applies only at a level of less than a unit a day. So there is no general protective effect of alcohol consumption. But then you get lots of studies thrown into the mix about antioxidants and um, studies in rats and so on. Um, the evidence is, is hugely, hugely overinterpreted. And the other thing which I think is worth really emphasizing, which is not an analysis of ours, but it's a really fantastic paper that was published actually earlier this week done by Sue Golder and Jim McCambridge, looking at systematic reviews yeah. Um, on alcohol and cardiovascular disease. Now, the evidence that we're talking about, sort of implicitly the J-shaped curve and so on, um, and protective effects, it relies really strongly on um, systematic reviews and meta-analyses of observational studies, and maybe more recently, um, Mendelian randomization studies, but predominantly it relies on these observational studies and systematic reviews of observational studies. And um, Sue Golder and Jim in Cambridge did this fantastic analysis, which compared systematic reviews on cardiovascular disease and alcohol, which had been funded by the alcohol industry with those which hadn't, uh, which couldn't be tied to alcohol industry funding. When I say funded, the, and the authors may have had some funding in the past. And um, it's really, it's absolutely fascinating. But one of the things that they found for these systematic reviews was that the findings of the systematic reviews were really strongly related to having a history of alcohol industry funding. So, if the authors had a history of industry funding, they were more likely to conclude that, card that alcohol had protective effects on cardiovascular disease. Yeah. So I've never seen, never really seen that sort of analysis before. But that, that completely puts a different complexion on all of this, that we can't now talk about you know, the evidence from the systematic reviews meta-analyses without considering um, the funding sources behind them. So, I mean, it's another uncertainty in the evidence base, but I think that's a really important one to bear in mind, which hasn't, which has sort of disappeared from view slightly. The evidence base on this is also skewed by industry funding. Thanks. Now you have uh, given me uh, the next uh, podcast guests already. I agree <laughs> with you that this is, a, this is a great paper, and I think it really complements our conversation today. I think I think Mark's taken us through the evidence exceptionally well. I think one thing I would add is that you know he's 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 pointing out that this is a this is a phenomenon that it is seen in academic literature that is 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 looking at at this what I would call a, you know a kind of a phenomenon in in literature in research and it it's it's one thing to to acknowledge that okay we're seeing something and and as Mark was saying there's also many other ways that maybe we could uh, explain what we're seeing and it's another thing to take that and then project it you know to the public as information that there is a beneficial effect and so i think that that's a you know that 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 is i think quite quite a problematic leap between something that's been seen in academic literature Uh, then being presented to the public as if something that you as an individual should take on in your decision making about your alcohol intake doing doing that is 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 quite you know that that's quite a, a big decision to make isn't it and and i think that that's that's very important to understand here is that it some that shift um and and why again kind of comes back to to is 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 that a, is that appropriate and is you know the the art of communicating to people how to um um the harms of alcohol and how to consume in a way that is going to keep them safe um is very different to you know academic discussions about things that we're seeing that that you know we're still actually still need to unpick I think the other thing to say is that what we're seeing as well is that we always see this whenever there is um, something in the literature that is under the process of academics understanding it, often that is a wedge right into which industry will always drive and try and um, use that opportunity 
to take that phenomenon and make sure that the public and policymakers see it in a particular way. And this, this is this manipulation, I suppose, of or opportunity an opportunity to um, I suppose ride with a wave of uncertainty, but make sure it's it's in the direction of, of the industry's interests. Uh, it is very difficult to manage times of uncertainty in the academic literature and and it, it's it's a vulnerable time and, and a vulnerable topic then and yeah. so this is why we say well how is it being again you can go back and say well that uncertainty or that debate in the literature how are groups independent versus industry funding how are they managing that uncertainty um and i think the other thing is to say that uh, often you know it, we forget that uh, we're, we're we're treating or, or we're speaking to whole people mm-hmm. and so you don't have some people who who um just will be risk of cancer or just at risk of cardiovascular disease you know, I don't talk to someone who one day wants to know about the cancer and then come back to me another day. We're talking about a whole body. So it, the same is the same, even if there, you know, you were um, genuinely wanting to portray to, to the public that there is this unknown effect, really, what's going on. But we have found some suggestion that maybe for a small group of people at a certain time of their lives who consume a certain amount, that I, I, I should always accompany it with. But, you know, there's other risks. And I think the other thing to say is, as if I was to put my, you know, kind of clinical doctor hat on, is there are many other much safer ways to be heart healthy. So yeah. I think there's, there's, you know, there's a kind of message there. Would, would I tell someone to be physically active and, um, you know, many have, you know, a certain diet that we know is is promoting of good health, that's highly problematic. And again, it's, that's a, that's a, um, that needs to be um, handled with great care. And I think that's what's really important. I think what you're explaining now underlines the point you made earlier that we also have to question who is in charge or who is even allowed to disseminate public health information? And then secondly, with what intentions um, are these uh, pieces of information disseminated? Because what you are explaining, but what you have also shown in other research, is that some of this public health information that is supposed to give the alcohol industry this health halo is actually harmful information, right? When they Uh, try to use social norming and create a picture. So I think it's quite insidious that people would go to a website or a Twitter feed and think they get health information, but they are actually steered to something else that benefits the industry and not the health information process of an individual person, as, as you are saying. So I think now you have explained well how difficult the cardiovascular disease area still is when it comes to to alcohol um but you jumped into this anyway and analyzed it so when i read the study also the methodological part i was very impressed about how you actually conducted the study and could you just please briefly summarize how you went about um to study whether or how the alcohol industry informs about alcohol and cardiovascular health before we talk about the actual results? Um, I mean, one of the things, as May alluded to earlier, um, that we have done in most of our studies, actually, is a comparative analysis, because through comparing the industry-funded non-industry organizations, you start to ask that question that may ask you, how is it possible that you see these systematic differences if there isn't some clear underlying bias? So again, this was a comparative analysis in which we went to the websites of a sample. Actually, these in fact were all of the ones which are responsible for health information basically these are the main disseminators from the alcohol industry of health information so we had 18 industry funded ones and a comparison group of 18 independent health organizations and we collected all of the information from the websites during a set period of time Mm -hmm. um, so that at least it was during a, a, a comparable period 
So it was a comparative analysis. And we went in then and collected all of the information relating to um, any aspect of cardio cardiovascular disease. So we searched this independently to two separate authors. I think this is really important for any of the analysis that we've done. You know, we haven't just had one person go in and have a look and see what they think. We have never done anything like that. We have been very systematic in terms of how we've collected the data and how we've documented the collection and analysis of the data. And we have very systematically checked and cross-checked both the, the data, the original data, and the analysis that we've done. And we did this here as well. Um, and before we proceeded to the full analysis, we actually extracted a subset of the data, coded it independently, and checked the reliability between, actually not just between the two of us, between all of the authors in PERS, to try and get, to try and assure that there is some reliability in how we're making the judgments. So there's a there, there's a degree, it's it's a qualitative document analysis built in, but I think the degree of rigor and transparency that we've applied to this is greater than many document analyses that, that I've seen or qualitative document analyses. We've been very explicit, I think, about what we've done and how we how we identified the main themes. Um, and then it's a process of systematically extracting data from the web pages or PD or from the PDFs um, and recording that and tabulating it and keeping it in Excel set spreadsheets so that others in the team can go back and interrogate it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's through that that you know potential biases in the coding or in the analysis um, are eliminated. I mean for this particular analysis I think it's worth saying because the numbers um, I mean, in, I think at least one of the previous analyses we've done a um, sort of st uh, statistical comparisons. We've done a quantitative analysis in which we statistically compare the frequency of particular appearance of particular topics, comparing industry-funded, non-industry-funded organizations. Uh, it mostly wasn't possible here because the numbers are quite low. But it's actually not necessary to do that. It's not necessary to include that sort of statistical comparison because of the level of rigor and transparency around the qualitative analysis. There were, I think we did one statistical analysis in the period in the paper, which compared how often the industry-funded, non-industry-funded organizations um, use this alternate causation argument or approach, mm -hmm. which we talked about earlier, in which um, an organization will mention alcohol, but then throw in a, a lot of other possible risk factors. Um, that's much more common, significant, statistically significantly more common in the alcohol industry funded organizations uh, than in the independent organizations. So that's where, for example, they will, they will acknowledge that alcohol might contribute to risk of um, cardiovascular disease, but then they'll say, ah, but what about family history? And don't forget your environment and your weight plays a role and your mood and poor nutrition and your et cetera, et cetera. And um, I mean, this is all true. They all make a contribution, but but if people are looking for health information, you're not going to the alcohol industry to find about the relationship between your mood and uh, cardiovascular disease. You want to know about the independent contribution that alcohol consumption makes and independent organizations, we know from the analysis, don't employ those sorts of distraction tactics. So that's you know that sort of explains some of the value of the, the comparative um, analysis, but it's basically a, a detailed uh, qualitative, predominantly qualitative document analysis in, the, in this case. And with this approach, what did you find and what are the findings that stick out to you? I mean, just I suppose one sort of top level finding or one summary finding, which sort of I think summarizes the whole thing and is actually entirely consistent with Sue Golder and Jim McCambridge's paper that we discussed it earlier, um, is that um, in the industry funded organizations, alcohol is described as protective, more likely to be described as protective of heart disease, whereas in the non-industry funded uh, web pages and organizations, alcohol is almost exclusively cited as a risk factor. So there's a very clear separation 
between the two. You know, the analysis analysis has a high degree of specificity, if you like. It separates out the two very, very clearly. If you're looking at an alcohol industry-related website or charity, or whatever, for information about um, cardiovascular disease, it's much more likely to tell you that it's that alcohol is protective. You do not get that from an independent organization. I think that says a lot. So for me, that's the that's one big thing that jumps out because it's quite because it's quite stark. I think. Yeah. Well, I I think for me, Meg, it would it would be this. This consistency, I think that's what that's what uh, uh, Mark is 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 getting at. But I, I suppose I'd broaden it out and say that this this echoes then decades of what we know about the strategies of industry themselves. Um, and again, we're talking then about we've analysed bodies that you know are really trying to discern that they're um, a group very separate from industry, but yet what we're seeing is very much consistent with. Um, the strategies adopted by industry themselves, and also these are strategies across multiple industries now. So this is alcohol, tobacco, food, gambling, fossil fuel. It's, uh, you know, we're seeing things like that, um, again, it was, you know, the kind of uh, using, as we were talking about earlier, about a, a particular finding in in, an, as a, in, the, in the academic literature and extrapolating that to talking about the, you know, we, we see words like positive effects or benefits of and you know that as I was talking about that leap from the academic literature to, to saying this to the public but I think the other thing that we saw was again it's it's not just if something is presented it's the how it's being presented and we know that these confounding with other um, things that might also cause um, a, a certain health harm or a certain health outcome kind of with it, with it, almost like a, a buffet of other reasons why that might happen, it is very consistent over years and across industry, across region. And then again, there's these these um, same ways of, of 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 framing then then what the problem is as well. So we saw a lot about how it's about individuals responsibility to to learn how to consume and that we need to consume in the right way which is never or the responsible way again with no no real definition what that is so this strategic ambiguity in the language so that it it can it there's again this image of being seen to inform being seen to advise but that advice and that information is is being in a in, in a way that's very consistent with actually saying very little of um very concrete information at all um and i think you know if you were to go through and say well you know is there very clear guidance on on what is a you know um a safe level of consumption and is there explicit warnings um, you'd you'd often say, well, no, that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing strategically ambiguous, fluffy language with lots of confounding and very certain ways of presenting and carefully bubble wrapping the harms. And I think I, we just saw this again with yet another topic. And and I think that's um, that that's a, that's an important finding is that actually if. This, what what is this consistency telling us? It's telling us that it's it it is potentially serving a, a wider strategy as well. Today, I I try to summarize for myself what you have discussed, and um, we know that the evidence is uh, growing stronger and stronger, showing alcohol's harm in cardiovascular health. I remember the British Medical Journal published an editorial, I think already in 2015, saying that the evidence is the evidence for alcohol's protective effects is evaporating, they said back then. But now it's getting stronger and stronger. So so we have this epidemiological situation. The alcohol industry, as you are describing here today, is engaging in this area of alcohol harm to manage and promote its corporate image and also to possibly maintain and develop or for sure not to threaten the, the market. So, for example, the female market. Um, and they engage with this strategic ambiguity, as you have explained now. 
So I think this is not just that they put a little bit flawed information on a website and one or two people might be a little bit misinformed. As you are saying, this is strategic. This is also across industries. As you have explained, this is also across health issues. This is applying what the tobacco industry has already been doing for many years. So, of course, I want to ask now, what do these findings mean? But for tobacco, I think this strategic misinformation was one of the reasons why they were taken to court, why these lawsuits were rolled out. And do you see that this is a similar pathway for other health harmful industries? And is this misinformation that they are putting out, um, is this so serious, so to say? So that is my concrete question, but also in this bigger context, um, what do we do with this? Where is this leading us and what should uh, uh, policymakers, civil society do about this? I mean, it, this is the key question, isn't it? And uh, it'd be very interesting to hear sort of May, May's thoughts on that. But my immediate reaction to that question is, you know, why are we even having this discussion? I mean, you mentioned the tobacco industry. How did we get into the situation in which we think it's acceptable that the alcohol industry is disseminating health information. I almost want to laugh at the concept. How did we get into a situation in which the alcohol industry and its front groups is a part partner of health agencies? Well, I think I think Mark has put it perfectly. So I, I don't have I don't have much to add. But uh, I think I would say, uh, you know, the, the, there's a there's a, a few things that. I think we just can start to really, really challenge, and and that is, um, and you know, I think, and Mark, Mark has put that 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 perfectly, and I think we need to start saying as well, you know, if if um, there is there is a duty to protect citizens, and I think if you want to be protecting citizens from whether that's traffic accidents, alcohol, smoking, you you need it, you it should be then it needs to be effective. And um, I think we've had these, you know, kind of information groups from the industry for several years now. And, you know, there's no, there's no reason to think that it's, 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 it's um, doing what, what actually governments said they're doing, which is we want to protect citizens from these harmful, harmful, um, harmful products, but also just, just harmful ways of um, delivering them and harmful ways of selling them and harmful ways of advertising them. Um, and I think, you know, we just need to say, well, you know, actually we, we need to get on with it. We need to start protecting people. Um, I think the other thing is to say is we need to challenge, as, as Mark was saying, the existence of these groups. They're funded by organisations or corporations who, if they're using money, need to show that it benefits the corporation. So how can we have this where the information going to people is being given by a being disseminated by groups that essentially at the core, because of the corporate model, still has to be benefiting the very industry that's involved in the harm. So there's a an, an really, really important conflict of interest that we need to get around that. I think the other is to say that um, I think if you have a health system in your country, people have the right to what I would say, a safe health system. And that includes safe information. And we need to understand what that means. Because if you're on the wards, if you're going and you're, you know, in the hospital, if you're going to your GP, that's, it, you know, there's a lot in place to make sure that's a safe encounter. And we don't have that with health information. I'm not saying that information is the, the, the silver bullet that it will solve everything, but it's an important element and people have the right to access decent health information, which brings me on to just one more thing that we, sometimes we see in these analyses is that in, we're looking across differences between major groups. That's what we look at. But when we do look at a single um, organisation, for example, during that process, sometimes the independent does start to adopt language that we see. It looks a lot more like an industry. And so I also really like to encourage organisations who are completely independent of, of industry to say, well, what, what's going on there? And, and why am I writing the information in a certain way? Because we still, we see spillover, don't we? We see actually that 
industry-like framings of things almost become the norm amongst everyone. And so I think it's it's constantly stepping back and saying, why am I writing it this way? Am I talking to the, the public as consumers or am I talking to them as citizens as well? So there's, you know, I think there's sometimes we plow ahead as if everything's okay, but there's still so much we can we can really kind of step back and question. And I think that's 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 exactly what needs to happen. A lot more questioning about what I was talking about, that governance side of things. Why? Why are things written this way? Why are they be presenting like that? And actually, what's your what's your kind of mechanism of action? Are you are you talking to people to change their own consumption, or are you trying to talk to people um, about what needs to happen in more their society and their their the, the, the kind of world in which they live to keep them protected from alcohol? And then again, that's two very different concepts. So I think that's a lot to unpick. So I think this also raises questions about the role of others who are involved in the information outside the alcohol industry. So these organizations will often point to their clinical advisors, medical advisors, trustees, and so on. What what are these people actually doing? Because this is happening on their watch. Are they they signing off the misinformation? How are they contributing to it? In one of our earlier analyses or one of our earlier papers, we sort of suggested that it's worth considering the role of clinicians and others who are involved in this process um, and whether this is actually consistent with their professional obligations or whether it's actually just ethical full, full stop. So I think there's some scrutiny of the role of others and enabling the production of information. Um, I think that's something that needs a lot of further discussion. And you mentioned, Mike, the uh, tobacco industry earlier. I think it's worth remembering that um, there's also like the tobacco industry, the alcohol industry now, on the basis of this and other analyses, appears to be misleading its shareholders and the mm-hmm. public about the risks of its of its products. So I think that's another um, discussion worth having about the uh, the wider implications of that. Thanks for this. Um Coming into the conversation, we talked about two strategic purposes, the health halo and um, to avoid regulation. And I think your points now um, add a third one, this kind of agenda setting, at least uh, determining the terms that we are using to discuss alcohol harms and to discuss uh, solutions to the harm. So I think unpacking this uh, third dimension here uh, is uh, super important. So thanks for this. And I just want to go back to what I said in the beginning. Mark, you mentioned that, um, and I think, May, you brought us to this uh, conversation by actually referring to this uh, core task of the alcohol industry is to make a profit and to engage in activities that generate the profit as uh, as uh, enterprises. And Mark, you mentioned earlier that they engage in this health promotion information, for example, in the context of breast cancer, to not scare away or to maintain or to even develop the female market, which is a strategic interest. So can we say that the alcohol industry is misinforming deliberately? This is a corporate strategy, so to say, and they have to be held accountable for that, or would you be more careful, or would you go? Would you be even more forceful in in this kind of conclusion? It's a difficult. It's a difficult one without having access to internal doc- documents. Yes, but yes. I would argue that one can draw some fairly strong inferences if you see the same pattern of activity, the same types of misinformation across different organisations, nationally and internationally. Um, it's starting to look like a sort of ecology of misinformation. As you said earlier, these aren't coincidences, surely, or if they are, it would be absolutely remarkable. I'd, so I would argue that what we see is a, 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 the application of a systematic application of a, a corporate playbook of the same sort that we saw in relation to tobacco, asbestos, fossil fuel industries, chemical industries, the sort of playbook that has been well documented by others in books like Merchants of, of Doubt and David, David Michael's two books. So, 
I I think Mark Mark said it very very clearly, and and it is it's very challenging. You know, we don't have, we don't have the same resources or the same um, access as we do with the tobacco industry. Um, but I think the one thing is to say that uh, you know, just by the very nature of a corporation, they will of course be extremely conscious of what people know, when they know it. And, and how people think about a certain product and the risk. So every company will be very, very conscious of the public understanding and the policymaker understanding and, and the, the kind of threat of litigation. Um, and so I think it, it, it's important to step back and say, well, then why? Why would a company, a corporation, want to fund the information I'm giving? And so I think that that's very important. Why am I attracting um, or why am I receiving, why as an organisation are we receiving funding from organisations that very, very carefully monitor what people know? And so I think that's that's just a really important question. So thank you for, for this. I think um, this conversation today has really helped to understand uh, key strategies of the alcohol industry and their social aspects and public relations organizations. Um, I think we have unpacked many different things and which I'm actually, I mean, you, we can always say this is kind of a bummer topic is uh, we have this onslaught, these well-funded organizations, they're doing all these things. You show what they do in the area of cancer awareness now in the area of cardiovascular disease awareness. But at the same time, having this conversation with you, I actually feel this, the last part has given at least me and in, in, in my work, a number of things to do. So we have to push back. We have to, I think, be much stronger in asking questions. And you have outlined uh, a number of these points. And I think we have to develop our counter strategies here as well. So I think in, in that sense, there is even this kind of positive optimism uh, that comes, at least for me, from today's conversation. And so I want to thank you for taking the time today. I kept you longer than an hour, um, but thank you so much. Thanks very much. Thanks for the opportunity to discuss the, the research. Thanks, mate. This podcast episode is part of Movendi International's work to increase public recognition of the real effects of alcohol and to protect more people from the harmful products and practices of the alcohol industry. In the show notes, we share resources mentioned in the conversation. You can find a link to a recent special feature of the Alcohol Issues newsletter that summarizes the latest knowledge about alcohol and cardiovascular disease. You can also find links to studies about alcohol industry tactics and resources about alcohol's link to cancer. Your feedback, questions and suggestions for future topics and guests is most welcome. Please get in touch at mike.dunbier at You can also reach me on Twitter and find my contact details in the show notes. Alcohol Issues podcast is made by Arin Pino, Tarakaranchi Goda, and Kristina Sperkova. That's it for the Alcohol Issues podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and stay well and safe and talk to you soon. <music>